Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Uh, more importantly, today I get to speak with uh, Dr. Kadri Jain, who is professor in the Departments of Visual Studies and Art History at the University of Toronto. We'll be speaking about a fascinating brand new um, 2021 Duke University Press publication, Gods in the Time of Democracy. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So God's in the time of democracy. What's your book about? Well, um, it's about, you know, most uh, sort of primarily, it's about these enormous statues that started to appear in India um, around the late 20th century, sort of from the 1990s onwards and have just, in a sense, gone viral. I mean, that form of these large, I mean, they're sort of, they're mostly concrete. Um, Some of them go up to 100 feet. Um, And of course, now we have, since 2018, India has the tallest statue in the world, which is twice the height of the Statue of Liberty. So really, I was fascinated by this phenomenon. And as an art historian, I wanted to get to the bottom of why this form emerges at this moment. It feels like you're documenting um, an important historical process, but in the middle of it, or, 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 or with a little bit of headway, which is sort of exciting for an art historian, I imagine. Yeah, it's exciting, but also a little um, bewildering, you know, because I actually started working on this project before the world's tallest statue was even thought of or announced. So in a way, I'm glad. I I feel as though I have my finger on the pulse in a way. Um, But at the same time, I had no anticipation of just how important this form would become. So in terms of what you're looking at in the book, uh, what would you consider your data? So you're looking at these structures and what else are you looking at to form your argument? Well, you know, I've been in my work in general, I have worked a lot with artists, with the creators of a new form. And that's part of working with very contemporary forms that are actually emerging in the moment. Um, My previous work was on calendar art, you know, these printed icons that are absolutely ubiquitous in India. You know, you see them hanging in every tea stall and people's kitchens, you know, um, uh, rickshaws everywhere. And so, um, again, you know, this was a very interesting form that nobody had really sort of taken seriously as um, an art form, if you will, you know, even though it's sort of more popular culture than um, art per se with a capital A. Um, So 
And in that case, I had, again, worked with um, artists trying to understand what, how they approached their work, um, how the form emerged and so on. But so it, it's talking to artists, it's talking to um, people who visit these, uh, in this case, the statues. Um, it was also about talking to the patrons, people who commissioned them and asking them why um, and what they had in mind, why they chose a particular statue. Because many of these, I should mention, are in fact religious icons. Um, the tallest statue is a political figure, um, Sardar Patel, who was India's first uh, deputy prime minister. Um, but by and large, the form emerged with these religious statues, mostly Hindu, but also Buddhist and Jain. And what do you argue is the significance of these icons? So that's where I feel I'm saying something a little bit different from, you know, the media and commentary in general. Um, a lot of people want to make a correlation between these statues and the rise of Hindu nationalist politics. And of course, that, you know, that's very much the case. We see that many of the patrons are, in fact, uh, from the Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, but actually they are not the only ones. And so, you know, I think it's a little simplistic to just say that this is about Hindu nationalist politics um, in a narrow sense, uh, because this kind of politics has actually pervaded all the parties to some extent, uh, you know, and that's that's arguable, but uh, that's the argument I make. Um, but really what I try to highlight in the book is something that kind of leapt out at me while I was doing my field work. Um, and that is the deep, deep importance of caste assertion in the period that we're talking about, you know, from the really 1970s onwards. But of course, this, these, this process goes back, way back. You know, we can go all the way back to the medieval period and the bhakti movements, uh, the devotional movements, which were very demotic um, and uh, preached social equality and social reform, as well as, you know, a religious message. Um, then we can look at the nationalist moment um, when big public festivals became very important as a way of mobilizing people in the anti-colonial movement. And that's when images start to come out of the temples, as it were. I mean, there was always some kind of um, ability for images to do that. It was very circumscribed. But during the nationalist movement, we get these shrines that um, are put up temporarily for Durga Puja and Ganapati Puja in neighborhoods and worshipped in the open air, right? Which means that anyone can access them. They become public icons, unlike icons in temples that are relatively guarded and access is controlled or has been 
we should say. I mean, now, of course, um, it's outlawed to uh, prevent anyone from entering a temple, although, you know, there are certain temples where that's still the case in practice. So to me, the, the really interesting thing was the publicness of these images, right? The fact that everyone can access them. And in the book, I correlate that to the rise of Dalit politics, Dalit Bahujan politics, and in particular, the use of statues and icons in claiming space, in claiming uh, recognition. In your conversations with the patrons and the artists over the course of your fieldwork, what would you say surprised you? Or perhaps, um, as you alluded to, leapt out at you? Was there anything that, that surprised you in the process? Let me think. Um, I mean, I have to say it shouldn't have been a surprise to me, but it was that... Um, a lot of the people who are involved in big statue building are actually trained engineers and architects. And I'm saying it shouldn't have surprised me because the calendar artists I worked with previously had been trained at art schools, many of them, not, not all, some of them were self-taught. And in this case, again, there's, there's real expertise here, there's training, there's secular education, right? And so what I find very interesting is that, and actually in, in many cases, you have a, a father-son team, where the father is a sort of traditional craftsperson, and the son has had some kind of training, either at art school engineering school, architecture school. So the combination of the two somehow really addresses the need of the moment, which is, you know, contemporary technical expertise, but in the service of a particular kind of cultural imperative, which is um, really for Hinduism and religion in general, to keep up with the times, right? And this is, this is another kind of important, I think, message in my book, which is that we need to take the contemporaneity of religion seriously, right? And the fact that it keeps changing, it embraces every new media form um, or new art form and runs with it, certainly in India and very likely elsewhere as well. Based on your, your, based on your exploration of this, of this relatively new development, can you begin to conjecture as to whether and how you see this continuing? Well, that's you know, um, it's an interesting question because I, you know, I well, let me just uh, back up for a second. I, I don't actually see our job as a predictive one, right? Because, I mean, part of my argument and part of my method is really trying to work with contingency, you know, things that come out of left field. Um, And 
that can actually change things a great deal, right? So that said, though, um, we can see that this form is absolutely everywhere. And especially every time there's an election, all the parties, all the leaders come up with promises for bigger and bigger statues for an increasing number of constituencies. So I don't see this disappearing anytime soon. At the same time, there's also mounting criticism, you know, especially during the pandemic, when there was a lot of um, a lot of grief and a lot of pain, and people were saying, "Why are people spending money on statues when they could be using the money in much?" more directly beneficial ways. So this, the, this, this sentiment has also been increasing. So let's, let's see. I mean, I, I feel it, these, these forces are, uh, are both very strong. My crystal ball too is in the shop. So I understand this. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. But thank you for indulging the question. Um, what would you... What would you say is the basis of the public appeal? Why why are folks so interested in having these statues commissioned? And you know, you know, for for a politician to make a promise, whether or not they intend to make good on it, they're appealing to a desire on behalf of the people. And so, what is what is it um, that's 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 drawing people uh, to, to want these these enormous uh, religious icons? Well, really, it's. It's the need for representation, you know, and that's why the book is called Gods in the Time of Democracy, because really these big statues are a way for a particular political constituency to stake its claim to recognition in the public sphere, right? Um, And this is sort of directly a result of the form of electoral democracy, right? It's not any old democracy. It is the particular mechanics of, um, you know, parliamentary representation where, you know, each constituency has a, a kind of numerical presence, if you will. And so it's no coincidence that these big statues compete in terms of numbers, right? It's like bigger and bigger. Uh, You know, you want, it's not just having a statue, but you want a bigger statue for this constituency or that, right? And this is, you know, I actually do think that this imperative does relate back to caste. Because, you know, the caste hierarchy is such that it's not enough to make money, right? Economic mobility is not enough. Economic success does not guarantee social mobility, right? You can't buy your way out of your caste. And therefore, the the modality of change has to kind of be different from just, you know, class mobility, if that's making sense, right? Um, 
it's very much in the register of social recognition. And social recognition has traditionally flowed from one of the biggest components is religious patronage, right? You make money, you build a temple, right? Or you patronize uh, an icon in the temple. And that is what gets you social recognition and possibly social mobility, right? I mean, and in the book, I talk about um, a very interesting case of the cassette and film production baron Gulshan Kumar, who, you know, he, he founded this, this company called T-Series, which uh, started with audio cassettes, went into film music production, and then film production in general. He um, built a big statue at Dwarka, one of the, you know, most holy Shiva pilgrimage places. He also built a big Shiva statue at his studio, the T-Series studio in Delhi, Noida. And, you know, so this for him was a way to achieve social mobility. Um, and in fact, well, I mean, we won't go into what happens to him, <laughs> but, um, but it's the same with chief ministers of states who want to woo a particular uh, population, um, a, a, a sort of religious segment. For example, um, in Karnataka, there are these two enormous statues of Basaveshwara, who is the, the saint of the Lingayat community, who was being wooed by Yediurappa, one of the uh, BJP chief ministers. So, you know, this is, this is what is at the heart of the appeal of these statues. So then would we see um, patterns in patronage of these statues along caste or social lines? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how it, it, it works. Although, you know, I mean, some of, so it's not uh, a direct correlation. I mean, say, for example, the chief minister of Sikkim, uh, who is no longer the chief minister, but he served for about 20 years. And he was a big statue impresario. I mean, Sikkim has, you know, four or five. And so he himself um, is of, from an indigenous community, the Kirant, but he was behind the building of a big Shiva and a big uh, Padmasambhava, Buddhist statue. And so this was very clearly geared towards his two main religious constituencies, the Buddhists and the Hindus, right? Um, so it's not necessarily that necessary that you would build a statue that, you know, of a figure who you believe in, but it's more about catering to your constituency. I find so fascinating this notion um, um, that the statues, uh, that the representation, um, the representation accomplished by the statues in the public space is, 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 um, related to or an analog to uh, democratic representation. I, I find this quite fascinating. Um, do you feel that 
the boundary between what we think of as sacred and secular is different in the Indic context. Could you comment on that based on your research? Sure. I mean, this is a, a question that's that's quite central to the book, actually. Um, and I think what I would say is that what the Indic context does is it illuminates the ways in which secular and sacred are constantly being, the, the boundaries between these categories are constantly being negotiated, right? So I don't think it's more the case in a place like India, but it's just more obvious, right? I mean, but, but I think that that negotiation, that boundary work, um, as it's been called, happens everywhere. Indeed. So if I'm understanding, uh, understanding you correctly, what you would posit is that the, um, the negotiation between sacred and secular is made more overt in, in the Indic context, but really whether it's Canada, America, the UK, wherever, it's always happening. Um, I have this, 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 this quip that I sometimes share with students when I'm teaching. One's not sure which is the myth, the religious myths or, 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 or secularism itself. Um, this, exactly. this, this, this is always occurring, but in, in, in the Indic context, it's, it occurs in a way that's much more public, perhaps. It's much more in your face, you know, um, and that is because, I mean, it has to do with the narratives we tell ourselves about ourselves, right? So in the West, there's this very strong narrative of, you know, secularism replaced religion. And there was a separation of church and state, etc. So, you know, people in the West have sort of taken that on board and that's what they see. In India, it's been a little bit different because secularism, as we know, has meant not so much, you know, the, the sort of um, supersession of religion, but the flourishing of all, right? So that different understanding of secularism has made this kind of difference in the way people perceive what is and isn't possible in the public sphere, right? Um, but, you know, that said, we have actually seen with the rise of Hindu nationalism over the period that we're talking about, the period of the emergence of the statues, um, what we've seen is um, a greater and greater ease with which politicians are able to dabble in religion, right? to make religious interventions. It's become more and more acceptable. Let's just put it that way. So, you know, even there, I would say that the boundaries are shifting. Fascinating. Um, do you want to say a word about the structure of the book for those who may be interested in diving into it? Sure. Uh, you know, the, the structure of the book, this book was a real challenge because one of the methodological points that I'm making is that when we look at images as art historians, you know, the tendency has been to just look at the period and place in which they were made. 
and find all our clues from that context and read the emergence of an image that way. What I'm saying is that we need to look, think in terms of processes, like a bundle of processes that may be coming from different moments in time at different speeds. You know, so it's a much more flexible process-driven model, right? So, you know, in the beginning, I was talking about how caste assertion, you know, we can trace it back to the medieval period. And then certain things to do with the big statues were absolutely within the period that we're talking about. Say, for example, um, I correlate the emergence of the statues to the rise of automobility in India, right? India is now one of the biggest car consumers and manufacturers. This was not the case 30 years ago. Um, and so what happens with liberalization is a huge um, rise in automobility. And what that means is more and more people are driving fast along roads. And this we can correlate with the rise of large images along roadsides, right? So, so that's something that, that happens very much from the 1990s onwards. So um, the, so, sorry, I've lost track of the question now. It's quite all right. Um, you, were, you, you were basically um, laying the foundation to justify the structure of the book. Right, so there's the structure. See, so, I do listen. Yeah, <laughs> good. I didn't say you did it. Um, so this, so because I'm looking at the multiple processes that go into the emergence of this form at different moments, um, it's very hard to just write a linear story. Yeah. It's more like I'm describing a network or an assemblage. So what I've done is approach the structure like, you know, those layered maps where you have different information on different layers. Um, so, you know, you might have parks on one and then, you know, universities and hospitals on another or whatever it might be. So in this case, um, each chapter has to do with the different processes that I'm looking at. And so, a lot of the statues recur across the chapters, but I'm telling a different story about them. So I have a chapter on, you know, I, I start out with just introducing you to the artists and the statues because, you know, that's my, my sort of primary entry point. And then we talk about democracy. We talk about religion and what I call iconopraxis which is basically what people do with images. And in this case, it's, it's a lot about ritual and how rituals, you know, how, how do you know what to do with a big statue, right? It's a new religious form. So this is, you know, we have to invent new rituals or adapt existing ones. So there's iconopraxis. Then there's a chapter about cars and land, right? Um, and again, you know, so there's cars and then construction is another big process. 
because of course, with economic liberalization from the 1990s, one of the things that happens is that cement is deregularized and construct, there's a construction boom. So a lot of the patrons of these statues, interestingly, have either worked um, with construction or are somehow related to the car industry. So that's, you know, that's another kind of surprise that I, you know, one day the penny dropped. I was like, oh, my God, these guys are, you know, they're all working in, they're all contractors. And they all understand concrete, which is why they can build with this material. You know, a, a big statue of Shiva essentially is built the same way as a reinforced cement concrete building, you know. So, so there's a very material story about how these guys are, and they're mostly guys, are working with the material of concrete. Uh, there's a story about the visual regime of automobility. There's also then a combination of the two. Once you're building highways, there's a lot of space along highways which is prime real estate, right? So these people, a lot of the patrons also have a very canny sense of real estate. You know, they, they buy a plot of land and they put a big statue on it, right? So this will attract um, people to come and settle there. So big statues are part of real estate development as well. Right. So, so each of these chapters um, tells us a different aspect of the story. Before I have a couple more, uh, as I call them, 30,000 for a few questions, but I can't help myself. Uh, I want to I ask a little bit about the uh, iconopraxis. Um, with respect to how folks regard these or relate to these statues in, in in practice, could you characterize overall whether there's overlap with how they relate to temple images versus festival images versus um, 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 ways of relating that, that really are um, um, unprecedented in the religious context? Could you say a bit about that that you talk about in the chapter? Well, there's not a lot that's completely unprecedented. What's very interesting is the kind of layering that takes place, right? It's because it's it's never just either or. So, for instance, and and of course it keeps keeps changing. So, for instance, there is one of the earliest and most influential big statues is one is a standing Shiva um, in Delhi, actually right across from the international airport. Uh, and it's called Mangal Mahadev. And in fact, they got into trouble with the airport authority because it's very tall and got in the way of the flight path and so on. But they, it, it, and the, they kept wanting to move it. But then, of course, it's a, a religious statue, so it can't be moved, etc. Um, so, I mean, that's, that is part of iconopraxis, really. You know, the fact that once you have a statue, it's very hard to mess with it, right? 
So anyway, they built this statue and, uh, and it was built by the Birlas um, in a park. The Birlas being one of India's most preeminent um, business families. And they have a, a long track record of building innovative temples and parks and so on, um, and public institutions in general. So um, when it first, I mean, I've been watching this statue for you know a couple of decades now. And so when it first arose, there was a lot of confusion around whether or not you needed to take your shoes off when approaching the statue, and if so, where. So in the beginning, people would walk up to a certain point and then take their shoes off as before they climbed the stairs to the statue, right? Then over the years, and some people were not taking their shoes off at all um, in the beginning. Then uh, five years later, there's a proper shoe stall at the entrance where you have to take your shoes off and then the entire complex is shoeless, right? So, so you see, you know, this is a existing practice that people were a little confused as to how to implement it. And then what do you do when you go up to the statue? Do you, is there a priest? Is there a lingam? Right. That, so in this in this site, the Mangal Mahadev site, there is a lingam. In fact, there are a couple of lingams, but these are not manned by priests. You can perform your obeisances. You can you know you can buy milk actually at the same stall in the front at the entrance. Pour milk on the lingam. You know, basically do your own worship. Then the question becomes, what do you do with the actual statue? And in fact, people go up to it. They might touch it with their foreheads. They might, you know, um, perform various kinds of obeisances. I've seen people prostrating themselves in front of it. So really, this is a very interesting kind of creative process where people figure out their own form of iconopraxis. So it's like conventions are being developed even as we speak. Fascinating. Uh, the the, the uh, innovation in real time is just mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating. One wonders whether the this uh, Mangal Mahadeva, whether um, uh, it underwent or whether they performed Pranapatishta. One wonders if it was ever uh, ritually consecrated. Uh, they did, yeah. I mean, all of these do have a Pranapatishta. You know, there is some kind of uh, ritual inauguration. Um, but again, I know in the South, I've, I've been working with sculptors in the North and the South. In the South, there's a very clear uh, understanding that the big statue, because it's made of concrete, which is not a sort of canonically, uh, you know, sacred material, it needs to have a smaller, proper statue, as it were, made of, you know, uh, some kind of sacred metal. So there's 
often a smaller statue embedded somewhere inside the big statue. So that is treated a little differently. That is what is consecrated. And then the big statue is, I mean, there is also ceremonies done with that. But again, you know, it's a kind of, um, you know, they make it up as they go along. Uh, it, but it's um, a layered process is, is my point. What's fascinating is that they make it up as they go along. But the, the, the case that you mentioned in the South, where uh, according to the Shastras and also oral traditions, um, particular substances are more conducive to prana. And when we think of prana as a life force, we don't we don't think of um, concrete <laughs> as particularly um, conducive to um, uh, living beings. <laughs> exactly. And that's part of this, the tension involved in these statues, you know, between politics and religion, right? Political demands are that we build this as soon as possible, that it look as spectacular as possible, right? And that it display a certain kind of technical prowess, right? Because politicians are in the business of building infrastructure, so they want to demonstrate, you know, what, why would uh, Prime Minister Modi build the biggest statue in the world? It's because he wants to say, you know, we have arrived, um, on the global stage, but in our way, right? So he builds this uh, statue of Sardar Patel, which demonstrates to the world the same kind of thing that his high-speed railway or the largest crit- cricket stadium might demonstrate. So there's that, but the sculptors, who, as I said, often come from craft traditions, for them, concrete might as well be plywood, you know, in terms of it's the time scale that it belongs to. So the time scales of politics are like five years or however long a politician's term is. The sculptors, on the other hand, are thinking in terms of eons, right? <laughs> you know, yugas. So, um, so this is all, you know, some of the tensions that are built in. And this is why we need the layering, right? We need the simultaneous processes unfolding at different speeds. One wonders whether or not the, the circling pilots at Mangal uh, Mahadev circumambulate <laughs> Murti <laughs> prior to disembarking. But I'll leave that. I'll leave that to 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 sharper minds and or um, their imaginations. Um, who do you feel? Um, actually, let me ask this question first. What's the, what is what do you hope folks might most take away from this work? There are many takeaways from the book because it works at all these different levels. But if if I had to pick one, I would say that it would be an understanding of the profound importance of caste assertion, right? And the, the ways in which caste has infiltrated all aspects of social life and political life and economic life, you know, that that this is a lens that we are only just beginning to reckon with. 
I mean, and when I say we, I mean uh, caste Hindus and, you know, people uh, who are not from Dalit Bahujan communities who have known this all along, right, through lived experience. I think we all have a lot of reflection and thinking to do about all the explicit and implicit ways in which caste practices, the habitus of caste, is embedded in our everyday lives and in our very sensory sense perception, you know. Um, and that's, that's kind of what I, what I took away from doing the research, you know. I was made to think about all of this. And I feel like that's what I most want to share with my readers. Fascinating. <clears throat> Who might most benefit from the book, whether in terms of interest or subfield, etc.? I think anyone who's interested in contemporary religion, not just contemporary Hinduism, but religion in general. I feel I have, uh, you know, the book has a lot to say about, you know, the ongoing life of religion. People so often think about religion as something belonging to the past. What I'm trying to demonstrate here is that it has kept pace, you know, in the same way as digital media, you know. Um, And in fact, it uses digital media, right? Um, I don't know about you, but my family WhatsApp group (laughs) is constantly, you know, good morning and, you know, with, with with an image of Shiva or whatever. Um, so, so there's that. Um, people interested in religion, people interested in contemporary India, in politics in India, the forms of politics, people interested in images, um, you know, art historians for sure, but, you know, uh, people in media studies, you know, media studies, again, has been a field which has thought of itself, which has somehow willy-nilly been a secular field. Media studies people don't think about religion. And this is the point I make in relation to Gulchan Kumar, you know, the T-series guy. People have described him in relation to cinema, in relation to media, but left out the story of his big Shiva statues. You know, so it's also about bringing religion into various fields and saying, you know, it's alive and well and innovating and morphing and we need to pay attention. You know, that, that really resonates. I, I, I chuckle to myself. Thank goodness I mute myself on these podcasts. Um uh, I taught at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies uh, from 2010 to 2020. Um, and one of the courses that I designed and one of the most popular courses is where I looked at uh, sci-fi fantasy through religious archetypes. <laughs> so um, I don't have any particular training in media studies, but but it's 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 news to me that media studies folks don't generally look to religion as a go-to mode of interpretation. Um, um, but I, you know, I have this, this, this sense, this um, conviction that it's a bit of a conceit 
that the ancients were unthinking <laughs> and uncritical and and that, that religion is something uh, <laughs> that that you know held sway in in you know this this idea that 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 uh, modernity uh, necessarily entails a departure from from religious consciousness where just look out the window um I'll turn on the turn on the news um clearly um religion is alive and well and um and not part- just in in asia right but I mean, look at well, Donald Trump. I meant, I meant CNN <laughs> when I said turn on the news. Yeah, no, right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's alive and well, and and um, I think perhaps um, secular secularism has to do with coming to terms with the, the scaffolding of civilization, which is deeply religious, um, and 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 so many of uh, we who are secular minded uh, unconsciously uh, are. are impacted by uh, religious ideas and tropes um enough of my yammering on about random ideas um final question for you is this work that you're continuing do you what's what's next for you well it's funny how um each of my projects has kind of segued from the previous one um i mentioned a big statue at the end of my book on calendar art and then I kind of revisited that and that became the second book the third one and I do think of these works as a trilogy so I'm I I'm going to be I've I've already started work on the third one which it comes out of you know my my work on the big statues because a lot of the sites where you know the the parks or temples where these big statues uh, are have a lot of landscaping which includes sculptures of animals so fake animals and i started to wonder what those were doing there, you know. Uh, and then I realized that a lot of public parks also have animal sculptures, also animal waste bins, where you put the rubbish into the mouth of an unsuspecting frog or rabbit or monkey. And I just started thinking, why would you do that? What is all of this about? Right. So, so essentially it, and then, um, you know, the, the famous, the first Dalit female chief minister in India, Kumari Mayavati, who I write a lot about in the big statue book, um, she built an, what was called an eco park. Now the eco park has not a lot of grass. A lot of it is paved in stone. Um, It features bronze animals in these kind of raised flower beds. And so, and, and, and trees made of metal. So again, I was wondering what is, where is the eco here? This is a very different understanding of nature. So, what I'm trying to do is instead of saying, 
you know, none of these people really understand what nature is. I'm trying to, to ask, what does it mean to represent what we think of as nature, trees, animals, rivers, and so on? What, what is going on in, in the vernacular imaginary? What, what is this, what is the understanding of nature? And I think what's at stake here really is a lot of this is being done ostensibly in the name of environmentalism, but it doesn't look the same as environmentalism in the West. And the effects are somewhat different too, right? So it is broadly about thinking alongside what is now called the environmental humanities, but asking some slightly deeper questions about, you know, how do we understand nature in the first place? And what, again, you know, because I'm sort of very deeply involved in trying to think again about so many things through the lens of caste, I'm very interested in how those hierarchies might permeate the understanding of nature. Um, so, you know, it's still, we're still at the, the initial stages, but that's, that's what I'm working on. And, you know, so the, the project is tentatively titled Nature in the Time of the Gods. Well then, um, God's willing, um, 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 if, if I'll still be doing this podcast at that point, which I imagine I will, um, you're most welcome to return um, and discuss that book. Uh, but I'd enjoy that very much. Thank you. Thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you. For those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Kajri Jain, uh, professor in the Departments of Visual Studies and Art History at the University of Toronto. We've been speaking about her fascinating new publication, um, Gods in the Time of Democracy. Um, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, keep reading, and um, keep contemplating um, the blurred boundaries between uh, the sacred and the secular. I'm your host, Dr. Rush Balkar, and you can study with me online at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies or at my own School of Indian Wisdom. Um, take care until next time. <laughs>